So just before I came in, someone asked a very wonderful question, and it gave me a nice topic for this evening's talk. It's actually on the Buddhist practice of contemplation. Exactly how do we do it, why do we do it, and how it works, and the different methods of contemplation which we can use to actually enhance our life, to get deeper wisdom, more peace, more happiness. Because Buddhism was never meant to be like a religion of study or a religion of scholars. And actually one of the uh, comments which I got in uh, Adelaide a couple of days ago, and I gave a talk on terrorism, and people said that maybe it's because that too many religions are led by scholars rather than contemplatives. Because the scholars who just read the books, sometimes you can misunderstand the books and un misunderstand what I've been saying for a long time now, the difference between the container and the contents. The books are containers, inside there's messages, but they're sometimes hidden. You've got to unwrap sort of the metaphors to discover the meaning. And when we understand the difference between the container and the contents, we can make use of the books. But we make use of those books not as authorities, but just as signposts. You know, there was a very famous saying in Zen Buddhism about the person who was pointing to the moon and someone saw him and thought the finger was the moon rather than looking to where the finger was pointing. So the signposts are there for us to look, to contemplate, to see. And they're not the truth themselves, they're descriptions. And I think that once we understand the difference between the container and the contents, the signposts and the destination, the map and the territory, the menu and the actual food itself, and I think we'll become much wiser, more peaceful, more tolerant human beings. When someone asks, as they often do, just how do we know what's truth and what's false? And it's a saying of the Buddha where the Buddha said that you can tell the truth, the Dharma, by what it does, where it leads, its effect. Because truth has to be something which creates peace, harmony, freedom, which solves problems rather than making more problems. So if you have any philosophies or dogmas or any ideas and it causes more disharmony in the world, more conflict, more pain, more suffering, and you know that cannot be the truth. This should be quite obvious to people. So how can we actually discover that truth, that which leads to peace, to non-conflict, to harmony, to freedom, to real happiness? We do that not so much by studying the books, not so much by listening to Ajahn Brahma, Ajahn Wayama, Ajahn Chitamala, whoever else comes here on a Friday night, but to actually to use what is being said and to contemplate it, to understand it deeply, to find its meaning. Because sometimes I'm quite uh, surprised. I've been teaching here for I don't know how many years and there's some people who keep coming back week after week after week after week. Imagine if I was a school teacher and people kept on coming back to my class year after year after year after year. When will ever they graduate? <laughs> so, I've often said, as a teacher, 
my job, my aim, my hope is to get rid of you all. <laughs> and when I come here and teach to an empty hall, I think, ah, my job is done. Everyone has understood they don't need to listen to the instructions anymore. However, it takes a while to really understand the truth. But this evening I'm going to say how to. It's not the what, but the how. And this is all about contemplation. Now a lot of times people uh, misunderstand or confuse contemplation with thinking. And many of you have been great thinkers. And we always remember there is, in the Western culture, there's a sculpture called Rodin's Thinker. And it's supposed to be one of the uh, best works of art, and certainly you see it in many books. And many of you may know that sculpture, Rodin's Thinker, because the poor fellow has got his fist up like this with his head on the fist, thinking so hard, his head becomes so heavy, you have to use your hand to support it. And that's actually what it's like when we think so much. Just the head gets very heavy and we can't really understand anything. So certainly through Buddhism, you don't get to truth by thinking, thinking, thinking. All you get is headache, headache, headache. And you never get anywhere. Many of you have tried that, trying to think your way through problems instead of using the method of contemplation. An important part of contemplation in the Buddhist tradition is that before you even begin to contemplate, you have to get sufficient peace of mind, sufficient silence to actually be able to halt the restless mind so you can focus properly. A beautiful story of what I mean by this is one of Ajahn Chah's great similes. And to understand this simile, I have to describe some of the uh, situations of my early life as a monk. Because in my early life as a monk, I was living in these forest monasteries of Thailand. And in these forest monasteries, which were in like remnant areas of jungle, there were many wild animals, especially like the crawlies, the snakes, and the, uh, the, not the elephants, they were just too far away, but the scorpions and the centipedes, all these things which regarded a monk as their dinner, as a legitimate right to eat. So they're all very dangerous beings. But also they would very rarely kill you, but they certainly would hurt. And in order for the monks to be able to come backwards and forwards from their huts to the halls to the kitchen or wherever they needed to go, the villagers would cut paths through those jungles and it was our job as monks to keep those paths well swept. Because when they were well swept, we could see actually if there was anything across those paths. You could see if there was a snake there coiled up or if there was a sort of centipede or a line of ants, whatever was there. And the paths in this part of Thailand because the soil was very sandy, very fine white sand, after you swept the paths, you'd have these white ribbons streaking through the jungle. They were the paths which would lead you from place to place. This was Ajahn Chah's simile. He said, if you wanted to contemplate a leaf which was in the forest floor and you looked upon it, 
there was just too many leaves and twigs tangled up there that you couldn't really understand or learn about that leaf at all. There was just too much going on. But when a leaf fell on one of those paths, it stood out, especially after you just swept it. <laughs> but when it stood out in the white sand background of a cleaned path, you could see it so clearly, you could see all its colors, its shape, you can get to understand it. He was saying it's the same with the things which happen to us in our lives. Sometimes there's too much going on. The life is just too complicated. And when it's too complicated with too many things going on, we can't really understand anything. It's like a tangled forest, like a jungle with so many leaves and twigs and branches all over the place. We can't make head nor tail of very much at all. And so this is why in Ajahn Chah's simile, we have to make the mind simple first of all, before we can contemplate and know what's really going on. And that simplicity is what we do in meditation. We slow the mind down. So we can focus on one or two things rather than many things. You know what it's like sometimes people think that, oh, you've got so many things you've got to think about. And we get so confused we never think of anything properly. We just do too many things at the same time. But with our practice of Buddhism, we learn how to rest the mind, to calm it down, so there's not so many things going on in the mind. You don't need to do so many things at once. It's just a case of the efficiency of the mind. I was uh, talking to some big businessman in uh, Adelaide during the last few days, and he was saying there's no time to sort of meditate these days. Life is so busy. And I asked him, sort of, why didn't you come to my talk? He said, because he was watching the cricket, because he was a Sri Lankan. What do you mean you've got no time? And actually, the, there's a lot of Sri Lankans here. I told them, look, if you don't come to my talk, that's bad karma. And now you know why Sri Lanka cricket team lost. <laughs> Too many Sri Lankans didn't come to my talks. But it's true that so we do have the time. And I was telling him at length, if you are a busy person, then you need to meditate more than anybody else to give yourself some clarity. So you can contemplate even what you need to do in your business. Otherwise you make too many mistakes. It's well known that when you, you train your mind in stillness, you become so sharp, you can see deeper than other people, you can contemplate with more effectiveness, you just know more, you can feel more, you get better insights and more intuitive, and your business becomes very successful. Our meditation retreat, which we're going to be building soon, I really want to get a grant from Mr. Costello because it's going to increase the economic productivity of our state and of our country. It's going to make people, especially CEOs, more sharp to give them the competitive edge to fight in this market-driven eco economic world. I think I could put a, a good case for this. <laughs> but certainly, the more quiet you are, the more effectively you can contemplate. And that's one of the first things that we should do, is to calm our mind down, first of all, and then we can start contemplating. And there's no end of things which we can contemplate, so we should choose wisely what are the areas which are the most important. And obviously we all have our problems in life. 
And when we sort of face our problems in life, sometimes they're so hard to contemplate because we get so emotionally involved in them. So close are we to our problems that we can't get that perspective. That's why in that book which I wrote, Opening the Door of Your Heart, I gave this simile for contemplation, to have another understanding of what it means. And this was that simile from my experience as a 18-year-old. When I went to the United States, I was really bored with the United States. It was just like some other European country. It was culturally just the same as what I knew. And I wanted to experience something different. So I went to Central America, where there were real jungles, indigenous peoples, going in fishing boats and trucks up these jungle rivers where in dugout canoes you see naked Indians coming in the opposite direction, living in a, in a culture which hadn't been touched by the West. But one of my destinations were these Mayan ruins, these ancient Indian ruins in the old temple complex of Tikal. This was in 1969. At that time there was no tourists who managed to get to that place. There was no way there. You had to travel for days. And so when I arrived there that I could clamber over whatever monument you wanted. There was no signs that these were protected monuments. Obviously if I really wanted to I could have taken anything I wanted there but I was a very good young man and it wouldn't steal. But certainly I did climb up to one of those pyramids. As a young man, as a boy thing, that's what you do. You see one, you want to climb to the top of it. <clears throat> I remember going to the pyramids in, in Gaza once, uh, in Giza, sorry, in uh, Egypt, with a full intention of climbing to the top of one of those pyramids. But if you look at how high they are, as soon I thought, oh, no way. <laughs> but these pyramids in the jungles in uh, Guatemala, Central America, they weren't that high, so I climbed to the top of one. And it was actually climbing to the top when I realized what their purpose was. You know that sometimes if you know too much, if you read all the books, sometimes you don't understand anything. Your mind is not free from all those ideas which other people have. So you can't really see for yourself. Because I was a novice, I knew nothing about archaeology or those ancient civilizations. I had an open mind. It was obvious what those temples were for. Because as soon as I got up to the top, it was above the tree line. Now for three or four days I've been traveling in the jungle. And if you ever go to a virgin, pristine jungle, you will find if you do cut a road through it after a few, and maybe a month or two months at most, the jungle is so uh, active, so alive, the paths get covered over very quickly with uh, branches, vines, other growths. So you're always going through tunnels. You can't see the sky. It's only like dappled light coming through the holes in the leaves, wherever you go. So for three days I hadn't seen the horizon at all. And after three days, when I went up the first pyramid, it shocked me that now for the first time in three days I could see infinity in all directions with nothing between me and the infinite. It was space all around. And only an 18-year-old young man, straight away that hit me. 
the symbolism of being so in contact with infinity, with space, with emptiness. And I imagine what it must have been like if you take like a young man or woman who'd been born in the jungle, raised in the jungle, have never actually gone out of that jungle. Basically, you would not have much experience of great distances, of horizons, of infinity, of space stretching out forever. And imagine what it would do to a young man or young woman who's taken up on some sort of initiation up that pyramid for the first time. For the first time in their life, they were above the tree line. They could see in all directions. It's the way I like putting it, nothing between you and the infinite in all directions. The symbolism is just too close to a religious experience. But as well as that, on top of that pyramid, I could look down and I saw all the paths which I'd come, which taken days, because it was such a, a tortuous trek to get to this place. And I could see the way the paths stretched through the jungle. I could see the rivers we crossed. And I could see the town in the distance, the town of Flores, in an island, in a lake, in the middle of this jungle, in the Yucatan Peninsula of Guatemala. I could see my world of the last few days stretched out before me like a big map. I could see where everything fat together. Now this is a wonderful simile of contemplation. You may see, feel that this is very similar to some of the stories of these astronauts or cosmonauts have gone above this planet Earth, gone beyond, and from a distance high above this world, have looked down and see just what this world really is. To see like a map, a territory of the world in which they'd lived, but being outside and beyond it. To truly contemplate, to see how things all fit together. To see the map of the thing we call life. We have to somehow get above and beyond so we can see fully how it all fits together. When we're right down in the jungle, we're just too many things there. We don't get perspective. We don't get the full view, the full picture. And that's why when people contemplate just by thinking, they're just too close to things. They haven't actually escaped from the world, got above it, got the bird's eye view in order to fully understand exactly what is going on. We've got to get above, beyond, stand back to be able to contemplate properly. So that's what contemplation needs first of all. And we have to contemplate those things which are most important to us, especially first of all, instead of contemplating the meaning in life and these great philosophical truths of the nature of a God or the nature of a self or reincarnation or the word meaning of love or whatever else you want to contemplate. First of all, that it's necessary to contemplate those things which create problems and difficulties in our life because those are the pressing business of your day. The arguments, you know, the fear, the loneliness, the depressions, the anger. And that's why that we should contemplate these things first of all. And when you actually contemplate these things, 
the Buddha gave some very interesting ways of doing it. One of the beautiful ways of actually contemplating these things in order to move away from them, to get that perspective so you're not too close to the actual thinking is actually to contemplate your body and especially to what happens in your body when you have these emotions. It's a very effective way of therapy of actually understanding just how you can actually move beyond the problems of life. For example, when you're feeling depressed. Too often when you're feeling depressed you get locked inside of your head, in your emotional world, in thoughts. And too often when we actually watch the depression inside of our minds, we get so sad at being depressed, we get what we call depressed about being depressed. It's called double depression. And then we get depressed about being depressed about being depressed. It soon trebles, quadruples, increases exponentially. And that is actually the journey down the spiraling hole, the bottomless pit of depression. The more you think about it, the more that it gets power over you. But there is another way and this beautiful way of uh, the way the Buddha taught, I've used this several times when people get really upset and fed up and it's incredibly effective. Whenever you get, say, depressed, there will be a corresponding feeling in your body somewhere. Somewhere in your body it just feels sort of different. And if you can actually associate the physical feeling which is uh, there alongside the emotional feeling, then you are starting a contemplation which will actually lead you beyond the emotional trap. It's the same way whenever you feel angry, there's a tightness, a tension in your body. Whenever you feel in love, there's, sort of a, there's a warmth around your chest. Whenever you have, when you have anxiety, there's a corresponding anxious feeling. You can feel things tighten up around you. You can feel sort of your inability to somehow speak. The throat tightens up. Now the point is that too many of us, we're not really conscious enough of our body. We're just in our heads too much and we're never really that aware of what our body is doing when these emotions are dominating our awareness. So it takes a little effort of will, a little bit of training to become more in tune, in touch with the physical feelings of the body. All you really need to do is to ask. Whenever you get upset, say I'm going back to depression, you feel depressed, ask, what is it like in my body when I feel depressed? Where is that feeling? What does it feel like? And contemplate that feeling, get to know it, get familiar with it. In the meditations which I've been teaching recently, in each of the, the stages of meditation, whether it's present moment awareness or silence or the breath or whatever, I've been using the framework to be able to get people into these stages of recognition, familiarity and uh, basically relaxation, contentment with these things. Because whatever you do first of all, you have to recognize what it is so you know what you're doing and then you become familiar with it after much recognition and then you can become comfortable there, you can relax in there, you can hang out there. 
So when you actually start doing bodily contemplation, you have to know what it is first of all. That's why you have to keep repeating it when you give talks, what body contemplation actually is. Whenever you've got an emotion, ask, where in the body is this manifest? Next time you have that emotion, where is it manifest? What does it feel like? After a while you recognize the feelings in the body which are associated with emotional states. Once you recognize, you become familiar with those feelings, and one of the great things with this method is that if you have a depression, you can see the corresponding physical feelings and it's much easier to work with the physical feelings than the mental feelings. The mental feelings, as soon as you watch it, you get a negative reaction. The physical things, you can actually see it and you can relax the body because you're more used to relaxing parts of the body than you are to relaxing the mind. So you use this little method, if you're really, really depressed, what does it feel like? How does it feel? What's it like? And you get to know that area. And when you get to know that area, you relax the physical feeling. When you relax that physical feeling, it's not that hard to do because you're used to relaxing parts of your body. When you go to bed at night, or when you sort of go into the pool, or when you just lay by the beach, or whatever you do, you put your feet up to watch the cricket if you're a Sri Lankan, or whatever else is you do on a weekend. You know how to relax the body, most of you anyway. And when you can relax part of a body, you can learn how to relax another part of the body. When you relax that part of the body, which is, has that corresponding feeling, you find the emotion disappears. Instead of working directly with the emotion, you're going on a by route, you have the emotion, go to the feeling, relax the feeling, you go back to the emotion, you find it's almost disappeared. It's a great way of dealing with bodily, con with, with emotional problems. You always tend to get anxious, you have anxiety or panic attacks sometimes, find out where in the body that's happening. One of our monks a long time ago, because you know, he was in the Vietnam War, got shot in the back of the head, uh, survived, but he had epileptic fits every now and again, simply because of the damage to the brain. And epileptic fits obviously were very, very um, uncomfortable. He didn't want to take medication, so instead he used this mindfulness. He managed to notice the corresponding physical feelings which happened before the epileptic fit actually came on. He recognized them, was familiar with them, and so that whenever he saw those uh, first signs arriving in his body, he could actually take action to go into his room to rest so that epileptic fits never came up again. It was a wonderful little method. By noticing the physical feelings which are corresponding to that whole process and working with the feelings, the physical, rather than working with the emotions, the mind. He managed to do that. So if you say, have grief because you've lost someone who's very, very dear to you, sometimes you might say, oh, contemplate the grief. You can go to my stories. You know, that We're always dying. You've done it many times before. You know, the simile of the concert, it's just a concert ended. You know, be wonderful, grateful that you've had that wonderful concert. Be grateful rather than mourning the death, see what you've had rather than see what's lost. I've given all these stories and other talks. But when you feel grief, how does it feel in your body? How are the muscles or the organs feeling there? See the tension there, the tightness. 
Because straight away you move away from the problem in the mind. Moving on to the body, it's easier to work with. You're not getting lost in the mental stuff, which you're not very used to dealing with. You can contemplate the physical feelings in the body, and you can do something there. You can relax those feelings. When you relax those feelings, it takes a while, then you find the grief. If it hasn't completely gone, it's certainly got much less. Panic, fear, anger. How do you feel when you get angry at somebody? How can you let that one go so you don't shoot your mouth off and create a problem or even kill somebody? If you can do this bodily contemplation, whenever anger starts to come up, how does it feel in your body? What's going on in the body? A lot of time with anger, the reason why the anger overpowers us and creates stuff which we regret for long, long times is because when you get angry, you're just focusing on what you take to be the cause of your anger. Your husband, your wife, the boss or whoever else sort of caused you or you thought caused you to blow up. When you get angry, you're never really looking at yourself. You're never really contemplating what is the true source of anger. It's not that person. It's not Mr. Howard or Mr. Bush. It's you. There's no reason why anybody should get angry. As I said once in the book, why allow anybody to control your happiness? Why allow someone else to make you unhappy? I refuse to do that. If the aircraft is late, I'm not going to let, as it was this morning, I'm not going to allow Qantas to spoil my day. I'm not going to allow Thai Airways, because they were late last about two weeks ago, to, to make my, my day really miserable by getting upset and worried, by thinking, why are they late? They shouldn't be late. This is a modern airline. Why are they always late? This shouldn't be happening to me. Why allow these things to make you unhappy? I refuse to be unhappy. But the point is that you can do that. That's why that some of these monks, you can see, there's no way in the world you can make them angry. Actually, it's fun to try sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> Just to test them out. Really get angry at them and or, you know, shout at them or call them idiots. Ajahn Brahm, that's the worst talk I've ever heard in my whole life. You're really hopeless. Why did he go back to Adelaide? Never come back here again. <laughs> Whatever, I don't know. But anyhow... The point is that when you get angry, you're always looking at something else. Bloody sewing machine, or bloody lights, or bloody this, or bloody that. You're never looking at bloody me, because this is the one which is creating that anger. So when actually you do get angry, it's great doing a bodily contemplation. It brings the attention back to the source, you, not to that person, the wife, the husband, the kid, the parent, the minister or whatever, brings it back into you and actually you start to feel the physical sensations in your body when you're angry. Anger is a very prominent physical feeling in the body. And once you actually to feel it, number one, it's very unpleasant. It's not nice to be angry. I mean, not physically comfortable. And once you actually can see that, relax the physical feelings. And when you relax the physical feelings, the anger will lessen. And when it lessens, you tend to be, your anger problem is solvable. This beautiful way, the anger, the emotion over there, bring it inside, feel it in the body, relax the body, and your anger's gone. 
So contemplating the body in this way is a great way for people to solve many of the problems in their daily life which create suffering and, and trouble for them. If you're like a young person, I mention this because too often people say that why don't we have more young people getting into religion, into spirituality, into actually um, organized or sort of major religions. And there's a reason is because religious teachers don't speak to the young in things which really concern them. So when you're going out to a dance or a nightclub and you want to talk to somebody, you see a nice girl there, or a nice boy there, whatever you want, now, why do some people get anxious? If you want to get over the anxiety of finding a partner, a boyfriend or a girlfriend in life, when you go up to, to speak to them, feel your body. And if you get anxious, feel the, the feelings in your body, relax your body, and then when you actually speak, you won't be so nervous. It's a beautiful way of actually dealing with the anxiety of kids. Same if you're doing an examination. Just feel how that sensations appear in your body. With those feelings you can relax them much easier than looking at your fear and trying to deal with that. When you look at the feelings in the body, relax those and then the problem will be lessened if it doesn't disappear altogether. Not only that, but when we start contemplating our body in this way, we get more in touch with the feelings in the body, with the tensions in the body, which can create diseases for us in the future. For example, you can feel your heart, your physical heart, and see how it's going. People get heart attacks, not, it's not a shot out of the blue, your heart has been telling you a long time now that something is going wrong. You can feel it when you get contemplating the body. And it shows you you're working too hard. Rest. Don't try so much. Don't worry so much. Come and learn some meditation to relax. Or just don't do so much. It's a waste of time being the richest person in the cemetery, as they say. You've got to live a long life. Pace yourself. So as such, the body is always telling you. But a lot of times we're not contemplating, we're not aware of the body enough, so we don't see the signs. And sometimes people can't sleep at night because the body is too tense. Because when you're worried, Bodily feelings happen as well. So find what those feelings are when you're worried at night, you can't sleep. Feel your body. Do a bodily contemplation. How are my feet? How are my thighs? How's my bottom? How's my back? How's, how's the reason around my chest? How's my head? When you actually go to the body, straight away you're not getting into this thinking, thinking, thinking business, which means that the worry is you, you're bypassing it. So one of the first things we do is body contemplation in order to lessen the problems in our life, in order to get better health, but also understanding our body, what it is. When we truly contemplate our body, we realize our body, it is not beautiful, it's not ugly, it's just a body, that's all. So we don't have all this body business. It's amazing, we have like a body shop now. And why, why do we have a body shop? Because we have to paint it up, make it look all nice and, and wonderful. 
One of my jobs of being a monk is to actually to perform marriage ceremonies. And being a, a bit of a, a, a cheeky monk, I was going to say naughty monk, but not really, I'm not naughty, I do keep my precepts, but being a bit cheeky, I take great pleasure during marriage ceremonies of sprinkling holy water on the happy couple. <laughs> but when I start sprinkling this holy water, which is part of the Buddhist ceremonies for marriages, an auspicious water to bless both of you, but when I actually uh, sprinkle it on the bride especially, then I really go for broke. It's not just a tiny sprinkle, <laughs> it's a shower. <laughs> I've done this many times, I know it's a bit mean, because I'm, I'm not a romantic, but when I do this, sometimes these poor women who've just spent about two or three hours on makeup in the morning, very expensive, all that makeup starts to drip. <laughs> And I do that for the sake of honesty and truth, so the, the groom can actually see what he's really marrying. <laughs> but fortunately, so they're taking in good spirits. No one's actually hit me yet, but I, I come pretty close, I think, a few times. But the point is, why do we actually keep on sort of denying the truth of this body? It's just as a body, it gets old, it gets aged, we get wrinkles, we get fat. It's just the nature of the body, that's all. So we can actually be at peace with this body. When we contemplate it, it's just a vehicle for us. In the same way we have a car. And when we lock up that car and we put on the... Uh, the security system, we can leave it in the car park knowing it's safe. Why can't we do that when we meditate? Sit down, make the mind, body nice and comfortable and then leave it alone and forget about it for half an hour. You know why? Sometimes because we're attached or we're worried about this body, we're too concerned with it. Wonderful to be able to leave it alone, put it down, and allow it to disappear. Because then we know it's just a body, that's all. And so whenever we find a boyfriend or a girlfriend, we're not worried about the body, we're worried about the person inside. Which means that all of you, you girls who are ugly, that you don't worry about being ugly. And all of you guys are getting old, you don't worry about getting old. Because <laughs> this is not the important part. We're living in a world where the body is so important, we give it too much importance, and that gives enormous suffering to people. Now how many of you just get sort of depressed or a bad self-image because you haven't got the best body? And it's a terrible thing for people to go through, especially young women or men, they think they're ugly. Just they get so much suffering. And if we can actually get a culture which doesn't really no, depend upon the body so much, but depend upon the person. That's why an old Chinese saying is, for all you boys, never marry a beautiful girl. I think that was written by an ugly woman, I think. <laughs> <laughs> now the reason why you do that is because as, as girls grow up, just, you know, they have... You develop personalities, you develop character traits, and if you're just a person who just relies on your good looks, you don't develop the other part of your, your repertoire. And this is wonderful, if you're an ugly 
girl, you have to develop not being kind, being caring, being so gentle, being a good cook, a good listener to be able to attract a mate. So all these other qualities are enhanced in ugly girls. So it really is a great deal to get an ugly girl as a wife. <laughs> all the ugly women here are going to come up to me after that. Oh, thank you so much, Ajahn Brahm. <laughs> and all the pretty girls are going to save a lot of money on makeup and beauty treatments. Because, you know, why are we so worried about the body? So when we contemplate these things, we actually get these wonderful insights. It's the body, that's all. And when we start contemplating things like the body, we don't get so upset when it gets old, when it gets sick, even when it dies. It's just a body dying, that's all. So actually, when we get some perspective on these things, I was saying we just stand back. It's just like a leaf on the, on the path. It's just this little body. We can look upon it, and it's not such a big deal anymore. So we're not so worried when somebody dies. And I've been to many funerals and I've actually viewed all these bodies in the coffin. When you see a body in the coffin, it's always smiling. Have you ever noticed that? They're always smiling when they die. How many of you have witnessed a birth? They're always crying when they're born. <laughs> Why is it when someone is born they cry, but all the relatives are happy and laughing? Why is it when somebody dies, they're smiling and all the relatives are crying? We get it wrong. We should look at the person. You know, the person is the center of the attention there. If the baby is crying, we should cry as well. Have you got any sympathy for this poor kid who's just come into this world? And when you see somebody died, they've got a big smile on their face. Shouldn't that make you happy? What are you crying for? <laughs> Interesting, isn't it? <laughs> Anyhow. When we actually start contemplating bodies, it's just a body, that's all, no big deal. We can leave it alone. We're not so concerned about it. And we don't spend so much time preening it, washing it. Look, how much time do you spend combing your hair? Or going to the hairdressers? Why do you do like I do? It's much better. <laughs> I don't have to spend any time combing it. Don't go to the hairdressers. Don't have to worry about the latest fashion in here. Don't have to go and dyeing it a streak of pink and a streak of green and a streak of something else. That must take a long time. You know, you, people say they haven't got any time these days. And you can understand why they're spending too much time in the hairdressers, in the beauty salon, in front of the mirrors. <laughs> That's great being a monk, you do not care about these things. But also, when we actually get some perspective, we can contemplate life and death. What do you mean by life and death anyway? It's just body being born and body getting old and body dying. Is that all there is to a person, just their body? If there is, when you do get, get old and ugly, it really hurts. If you think that's all there is to you, just a body, if, you, if someone does die young, and you think it's just a body which dies, it's just really awful, it's very sad. When you understand there's something more to that, that's when we contemplate this thing we call mind. What is this mind? The only way you can contemplate the mind, again, if you have the leaf on the path. Get the mind alone, where all this other stuff isn't there. And that's actually why we meditate, to get to some mind alone, pure mind, nothing else around, no body, 
You go inside yourself, forget your body, forget all these other things, all the duties and business of your life, and focus on this one thing which is hearing this, which is knowing this, the one in charge, the one who wills and chooses. What actually is that? Isolate that, just like a, a chemist isolates some metal or some element and investigates its properties. When you isolate it, get the pure form, you can actually understand what it really is. And this is the important deep contemplations of life. Who are you? Now what is this mind? Is there such a thing as reincarnation? How does it work? To be able to understand all of those things is a waste of time reading the books. You read one book, it says one thing, another book says another thing, and you get the religious leaders that take their book, and the other religious leader takes their book, they fight each other with the books, banging each other on the head with books. And they never understand anything, because you know, they don't contemplate what's actually inside the books. What's inside the books tells you actually to find out what's going on. It was just recent, oh, I think, yeah, it was recently when I was in Singapore, I was actually quoting the Gospel of Thomas, a contender, from the Gnostic Gospels attributed to Jesus. I was actually having some Christianity in my talks, where it says that he who knows themselves knows the truth of all things. A nice little saying that. So you know, you know who you are, and then you know the, all the truths. This is actually what we mean by that, is actually contemplating this thing which knows, this thing which does. I don't mean thinking about it, because if you're thinking about it, you just go around in circles. Philosophers have done that for the last 2,000 years. Where have they got? They've got tenure in universities, but that's about all. But they you know, don't relate to anybody. But actually, when you start contemplating these things, what is knowing? What is doing? What is the will? And we have a great fun as monks contemplating these things. You go so deep in meditation, you've just got the will right in front of you like a leaf on the path, still. And for contemplation, you need to maintain your focus on something for a long time. Not thinking, but just gathering data. What I said earlier about recognizing what this thing is, becoming familiar with it, and then you can rest in it and get to know it. When you go to a new job, you know, sometimes you don't know people. You've got to recognize them first of all. After a few weeks, you get familiar. You can rest there. You feel comfortable there. Then you get to know what's going on. It takes time to know. It takes depth and peace and stillness to be able to contemplate. So if you want to contemplate these deep truths of life, you have to develop the still mind, which can hold something long enough to see what it truly is, to see it deeply. At this point, for the camera, I usually give a demonstration. I haven't given this demonstration for many years. I usually give it just on meditation retreats. I pick up something and I ask the audience, what is this? Contemplate it now. What is it? Somebody says a glass, somebody says a water, somebody says a sink inches high, sparkling in the lights. Yes, what else is it? When you keep on investigating, after a while, all of the words and descriptions are all used up. 
and then you can start contemplating because is this a glass of water? Is that all it is? When you can keep something still in your intention for long enough for all the labels to disappear at that point contemplation begins. It's the labels which stop us seeing the truth. The labels are the signposts, the labels are the menu, it is not the destination, it's not the food. You know, I said this many times about the man who went into the five-star restaurant, the maitre d' gave him the embossed menu, he ate the menu, paid and went away. What a stupid man that was. But that describes many people who go to churches and temples who follow religions. They may have a Quran or a Bible or a Dhammapada or uh, the Bhagavad Gita or whatever holy book it is. All they do is they eat the book and they're never sort of satisfied, they're never peaceful, wise and compassionate. Because the, the book is there to tell them something. The labels are not the thing. So when I hold this up, it is not glass of water. That's just a label. Contemplation means we look at something till all the labels are gone and then we start to see it. That's just with a glass of water. Now, who are you? <laughs> when you look at yourself, you have all the labels first of all. Man, woman, Asian, Caucasian, old, young, Buddhist, Christian, atheist, agnostic, follower of the great white lamb, whatever religion you are. Liberal, Labour, Greeny, Communist, old, young, intelligent, stupid. All of these are labels. I told this old story a couple of days ago in Adelaide. It's a great exercise here. The people in this room are probably a, a very average cross-section of the society in Perth. We don't attract sort of intelligentsia or dummies, just everybody is, is welcome here. We're so desperate anybody can come in. <laughs> <laughs> so this is an average cross-section of society. Now how many of you, you can put your hand up if you want, how many of you think that you're above average intelligence? How many of you think you're above average intelligence? If I asked you honestly, if you really put your hand up, most of you would think you're above average intelligence, if not all of you. Half of you will be wrong. Because <laughs> half of you has to be below average intelligence. But why is it we always think, that's other people, they're stupid, but I am above average intelligence. We don't contemplate properly because to contemplate we also have to overcome fear, denial. The labels come because of fear, denial. We don't want to see deeply into things, we just want to keep the illusion. Now actually when you get through the labels you can see who you really are. This is why we have to take some things in stillness and just watch it. Even these days, if I've got ordinary problems in life, you know, just, you know, who to invite to this global conference? How can I get this problem finished? Because I'm a, ma I'm a manager as well as a monk, as a teacher. Now, how, where should we build our next hut? 
Sometimes when we contemplate a problem, if you think too much, it never gets a solution. You've got to pull all the information in and stop and put the problem up in front of you and just leave it alone and just watch. When all the solutions, the ideas, the words stop, then you find your solutions. There was one lady, I'm not sure if she's here tonight, when she came on my last, the last retreat which I gave here in Perth last year, she had all these problems at work. She was a manager of a particular department, I'm not saying which. And she left work on a Friday evening, just with all these problems, unfinished business, to come to the retreat. She was a smart lady, she knew Buddhism, she knew how to contemplate. They were all in her head, but she's just stopped thinking about them. She meditated for two or three days, not worrying about them, not thinking about them, not doing anything. And she came to this interview after three or four days and she came, you know, as I was meditating, all these amazing solutions came up in my mind. They're great answers to these problems. I could have never got those answers through thinking about them. Only by stillness. It's in stillness you see deeply. That's why to contemplate even the problems of your life. Make the mind still. Put all the information for in first of all. Make the mind still. It's incredible how well great answers come up. Sometimes you think it's intuitive. It's not intuitive, it's just a process of wisdom happening. The problem of human beings, when they've got a problem, they just think too much. Thinking is okay. I didn't say don't think at all. I said don't think too much. Which is, you know, what you're thinking now is already too much. So just put the, the information in there and leave it alone and let the whole thing grow, develop, mature until the answer comes up. And this is actually how we do contemplation in stillness. Seeing clearly, not getting lost in the labels, being able to see deeply into things. Which is why that sort of, you know, traditionally, you know, Buddhists, especially monks and nuns, are, are supposed to be wise. You know, all the sort of teachers who've come here, you think are wise. Where did their wisdom come from? Sometimes it's amazing just what you can get away with as a monk. It was that case, I was at this transport seminar arranged by Alana Matina when she just became minister for the first time. And at that seminar, it was held in the Duxton Hotel. So I went there, and because I was a monk, there's only a monk in this uh, big meeting of suits and skirts, Actually, I suppose I was a skirt. <laughs> but anyhow, <laughs> this guy came up to me and he was, uh, uh, he was a journalist working in sort of transport magazines, especially in shipping. So he gave me an interview about sort of transport issues. And I know I would I'd speak to anybody. <laughs> just. But apparently, that that interview, he wrote it up. He actually called it "Zen and the Art of Shipping" by Ajahn Brahm, and that was actually syndicated. He came and told me a year later that was syndicated to all the major shipping journals in the world. And one of his friends, one of his experts, you know, in shipping transport, 
they emailed him back and said, I don't know who that Ajahn Brahm is, but he knows what he's talking about. <laughs> and of course, I don't know what I'm talking about at all. But how can you sort of be, you know, be able to answer those questions and experts in the shipping field think you're wise? Just uh, I saw Dennis in the corner over here. He got me involved in this grief and loss conference some years ago in the Observation City Hotel. So I'm not a psychologist or a therapist. My degree was in theoretical physics, not sort of in psychology or psychiatry. But I sort of rolled up there, gave the little speech, and afterwards had question time. And there was this woman organizer, she's supposed to be the expert in Australia. And at question time, someone asked her a question. And I always remember this, and she referred it to me, asked the monk. (laughs) And the person who asked the question said, you're supposed to be the expert. She said, no, no, the monk is the expert. (laughs) Or that time when I went on, it was 96FM or 6PR, I forget now. And it was that, that uh, adult theme show on relationships. I forget what it was called now. And there you are, you're a monk. And from 10 o'clock till 12 o'clock, I was fielding all these calls on adult issues. And what do I know about such things? <laughs> <laughs> but nevertheless, you know, the, it's wonderful. All the calls were coming to me after 10 minutes. It was the other person who was actually manning the phones was Dr. Gabriel Morrissey, who's written all these books on sexology. She's the expert. But no, no, there's a, I, I sort of overpowered her with you know, my, my celibate wisdom. <laughs> so how come all these monks and nuns who come here, wh- how come they're wise? Where does their understanding come from? It comes from the contemplation which is based on stillness. When you're still, you can really see deeply. You think too much and you only see the surface. Superficial. See, just glass. You don't see what's really deeply in here. So to really contemplate, we train the mind to be still. When you train the mind to be still, you just penetrate so deeply into the nature of things. Whether it's shipping, or whether it's sex, or whether it's grief, or whether it's Dhamma, that you become a wise person. It's not what you're taught makes you wise, it's what you see makes you wise. That's what contemplation is. So now you know how to be wise. And once you're all wise, you'll put me out of a job and I'll be so happy. Thank you. (laughs) So thank you for the talk tonight. So has anyone got any questions, comments or complaints this evening? Any questions, comments and complaints about tonight's talk on contemplation? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, when's the best age? The best age is now. Whatever age you are, <laughs> that's always the best age. No, I mean, kids are great at contemplating. Again, sometimes you see them playing. They, you think they're playing, they've just got a rock and they're just looking at it. Many kids have got these amazing minds, they can see so deeply. And, you know, what, what's that saying? That out of the child's mouth comes such great wisdom? I forget what, it's something, something like that. 
And because they just see things freshly, they see things in a different way. That sometimes the kids, they come out with amazing pearls of wisdom. So any age. And in our education system, it's amazing if you can actually give kids quiet time. If you haven't heard it here, I've said it before, there was uh, one of the disciples, she was in, oh, I don't mind saying it, in Rolly Stone Primary School. And she was doing quiet time in year sixes. Starting off in the, in the beginning of the term, five minutes, and moving up to 15 minutes, the first thing of the day, or after the assembly or whatever, not quite sure, but early in the day, doing quiet time. And I met the principal of that school, uh, and when I had tea with him, he said, look, I am not a Buddhist, but I've seen over the many years this lady has taught this, just that class does so well. It improves their ability to learn, the ability to retain information, concentration. But he said some other things happened as well, which were quite unexpected. So all the kids in that, school, in that class were more sensitive to each other. When they saw someone had a difficult time, they may have had a problem at home that morning, they'd actually all go and help out. They were being compassionate. And it became a problem-solving device as well. If there was any, any argument or a fight about to start with the boys in the class, someone put their hand up and say, can we have quiet time now, miss? And so all the kids would stop what they were doing and they sit down, close their eyes, do meditation for five or ten minutes, and the problem will be just sidetracked. And the headmaster was full of praise for this. So yes, what a wonderful thing to actually to include in our schools. As I mentioned in the book, it was a French philosopher, Louis Pascal, once said, all the problems of man come from them not knowing how to sit still. And that goes for women too. <laughs> Thank you for that.